climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This is Democracy Now! You may have noticed there is absolutely nothing taking place on the outside of the of the, of the official venue. There are there is no people summit. There is no demonstrations. There, of course, that's because you know many of these things are illegal here in G, in Egypt. Here in Egypt has entered its second week as climate justice activists demand the United States and other large polluters do more to combat the climate crisis. This comes as pressure is growing on Egypt to release Ali Abdel Fattah and other political prisoners. Then, President Biden's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Indonesia as tensions escalate between the two world powers. It's their first meeting since Biden became president. The world expects, I believe, China and the United States to play key roles in addressing global challenges from climate uh, changes to food insecurity and to, for us to be able to work together. United States and China work together from Taiwan to the war in Ukraine to the climate crisis. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Democrats have held on to the U.S. Senate after incumbents Mark Kelly of Arizona and Nevada's Catherine Cortez Masto won their midterm races over the weekend. Senator Raphael Warnock beats Republican challenger Herschel Walker in Georgia's December 6th runoff. Democrats will expand their majority to 51 total Senate seats, meaning they may not have to rely on Vice President Kamala Harris to break a tie and can afford to lose a single vote when confirming executive and judicial nominees or passing certain measures through reconciliation control of the Senate is still undecided as neither party, control of the House is still undecided as neither party has secured the necessary 218 seats. Democrats now hold 204 House seats, while Republicans have 212. In Washington state, two Democrats won their races over the weekend. Newcomer Marie Glusenkamp-Perez beat Trump-backed Joe Kent while Kim Schreier held on to her seat against Republican Matt Larkin. In neighboring Oregon, Republican Lori Chavez-Dreamer flipped a Democratic seat after beating progressive candidate Jamie McLeod Skinner, who ousted longtime incumbent Kurt Schrader in the primaries. Newly elected progressive Democrats arrived in D.C. Sunday to meet with members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, including 25-year-old Maxwell Frost of Florida, who became the first Gen Z Congress member. We have heard all about the re this red wave and this and that. And when you look at the numbers, we see that what stopped the red wave were young voters who turned out in historic numbers, who voted for Democrats over 63 percent. In Nevada, Democrat Cisco Aguilar defeated 2020 election denier Jim Marchant to become Secretary of State. In an Arizona Secretary of State race, Democrat Adrian Fontes beat out Republican Mark Fincham, who has ties to the far-right Oath Keepers. 
in Arizona's governor's race. Democrat Katie Hobbs has maintained her narrow lead over Republican Carrie Lake. Lake, whose chances of overtaking Hobbs look increasingly slim, previously refused to say whether she would accept defeat and has been predicting a major victory for days while making baseless allegations that election officials are slowing down the counting. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the recaptured southern city of Kherson, which Russia had occupied since March before fleeing last week, celebrating a major victory in the ongoing war. Zelensky said investigators found evidence of hundreds of Russian war crimes in Kherson. Over the weekend, jubilant crowds in Kherson greeted Ukrainian soldiers. It is impossible to express in words what I feel now. Never in my life had I felt such joy as now. Our brothers, our protectors have come, and here we are free today. This is unbelievable, impossible to convey. Kherson is Ukraine, and the Ukrainian army is the best army in the world. Yeah. Zelensky said over the weekend fighting in the Russian-occupied eastern Donetsk region was like hell. Kyiv is hoping to reclaim Donetsk, though it's expected to be a particularly tough battle as part of the region is defended by long-standing separatists. The Biden administration announced plans that would lower methane emissions from domestic oil and gas drilling by 87 percent below 2005 levels. The new regulations were unveiled as President Biden attended the COP27 climate summit here in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on Friday. We immediately rejoined the Paris Agreement. We convened major climate summits and reestablished. I apologize you ever pulled out of the agreement. The United States is currently the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases after China and by far the largest historic polluter, accounting for about 20 percent of global carbon dioxide emissions. During his remarks, Biden did not mention the issue of loss and damage. Climate activists are pushing the U.S. to compensate poorer countries over the irreversible impacts of global heating. Meanwhile, outside the halls of COP27, hundreds of people rallied Saturday to demand global systemic transformation to defend human rights and combat the climate catastrophe. This is South African climate activist Gabriel Klassen. We are not only representing ourselves, but the communities that we come from, the frontline and affected communities that we come from, the areas and the spaces that are continued to be extracted from for the use of big industries, big corporations, big countries, big fossil fuel industries. For too long have we invested in fossil fuels and a dead future. The reason that we are here today is to stand up and say enough is enough. It's time for climate justice. It's time for change. Climate rallies also took place in other cities across the world as part of a global day of action. The family of the imprisoned activist and writer Al Abdel Fattah received a letter from him today, the first proof of life since October 31st. Al Fattah stopped drinking water on November 6th, the first day of the COP27 summit after already being on a hunger strike for seven months protesting his imprisonment. 
In a letter dated Saturday, November 12th, Al Fatah said he began drinking water again on that day. He also said his vital signs are okay and that he's receiving medical care. In response, Al Fatah's sister, Sena Saif, said, quote, We're relieved to see proof of life. I can sleep today without nightmares, but we want this to be over. Our family deserves a break. We need to be reunited in peace, she said. Meanwhile, the Egyptian imprisoned activist Al Fatah's lawyer was denied entry to the prison today for the third time, despite receiving permission from the prosecutor's office to visit Allah. His plight has received intensified attention over the past week with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and U.S. President Joe Biden all raising his case in their meetings with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi. President Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Bali, Indonesia today for their first in-person talk since Biden took office. The meeting took place ahead of the G20 summit and amidst increasing tensions between the two countries over Taiwan, the war in Ukraine and technology. President Xi pledged to hold candid talks with Biden, saying, quote, the world has come to a crossroads. Biden expressed similar sentiments. We'll have more on the Biden-Xi meeting later in the broadcast. In between his appearances at COP27 and the G20 summit, Biden was in Cambodia Saturday to address ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Biden's visit to the ASEAN summit came as human rights groups warned Southeast Asian leaders have done little to challenge Burma's military rulers. He seized power in a February 2021 coup. Turkish police have arrested 46 people following Sunday's explosion in a crowded Istanbul neighborhood that killed at least six people and injured dozens of others. The suspected bombers uh, is among the arrested. Turkey has blamed Kurdish fighters for the attack, though the perpetrator has yet to be confirmed. It's the Turkish government that says they've arrested the perpetrator. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Court has issued its first known death sentence to a person convicted of participating in a banned anti-government protest. The court also handed down prison terms of up to a decade to five people charged with violations of national security and public order. The protests erupted more than seven weeks ago after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody. Human rights groups report at least 326 people have been killed in the demonstrations in Iran. A United Nations envoy is urging Western and other nations to lift catastrophic sanctions that were opposed on Syria over a decade ago after the start of the war. The UN says the measures enacted by the United States, the European Union and others have exacerbated the destruction and trauma faced by the Syrian people, leading to dangerous shortages of medicine, food, water, shelter and other essential resources. At least 90% of Syria's population lives in poverty, with sanctions severely undermining efforts of economic recovery, according to the UN envoy. In news from the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed a Palestinian woman during a raid in the city of Beitunia, a suburb of Ramallah, on Monday. 
The 19-year-old was fatally shot after an attempted vehicle check. So far this year, Israeli soldiers killed over 130 Palestinians in assaults in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, making 2022 the deadliest since at least 2006. Ethiopia's government and Tigrayan officials signed an agreement making way for immediate humanitarian access as the two sides move ahead with a peace deal reached in South Africa earlier this month. This is former Kenyan president, mediator in the deal, Uhuru Kenyatta. There shall be severe sanction on anyone who will commit atrocities against civilians. All parties to the Tigray war have been accused of war crimes. By some estimates, up to 800,000 people have died in the two-year-long war, while millions have been displaced. The UN says 5.2 million people in Tigray are in urgent need of humanitarian assistance. Back in the U.S. in Charlottesville, Virginia, at least three people were killed and two others wounded late Sunday after a gunman opened fire at a garage on the University of Virginia campus. Classes were canceled Monday as a suspect, who's also a student, is still at large. The Biden administration's extended temporary protected status, or TPS, for people from Haiti, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Sudan, and Nepal until June 2024. The move will continue to temporarily shield some 260,000 immigrants from deportation. Their relief was due to expire by the end of this year. And Twitter put on hold its recently launched $8 blue checkmark subscription service Friday after fake accounts inundated the site. Among the imposter accounts, a fake Eli Lilly account posted a tweet announcing they would make insulin free, causing the pharmaceutical company's stock to take a plunge. Meanwhile, a fake Lockheed Martin account, at Lockheed Martini, posted it would halt weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the U.S., causing the real Lockheed Martin to lose uh, value of their shares. Fake accounts for Tesla were also created. In related news, Twitter started laying off a large number of its contract workers on Saturday, including those working on content moderation. One of Elon Musk's first acts as Twitter's new owner was to lay off around half the company's permanent staff, almost 4,000 workers earlier this month. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We are broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit, COP27, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. On Saturday, hundreds of protesters marched inside the conference venue, calling on wealthy nations to pay reparations for their role in causing the climate crisis. The United States is the largest historical emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. On Friday, President Biden attended the climate talks in Egypt and pledged to spend $11 billion annually on international climate aid. We're racing forward to do our part to avert the climate hell that the U.N. Secretary General so passionately warned about earlier this week. We're not ignoring harbingers that are already here. It's true. So many disasters. Climate crisis is hitting hardest those countries and communities that have the fewest resources to respond and to recover. And that's why last year I committed to work with our Congress to quadruple U.S. support 
to climate finance and provide $11 billion annually by 2024, including $3 billion for adoption. President Biden was briefly disrupted by a group of youth and indigenous activists from the United States who unfurled a large banner reading People versus Fossil Fuels. Climate justice activists criticized the United States for not doing more and questioned whether Congress would approve even a fraction of Biden's pledge. Meanwhile, as the U.N. Climate Summit enters its second week here, pressure is growing on the Egyptian government to release political prisoners, including the imprisoned writer and technologist activist Ala Abdel Fattah. Ala's sister, Sanes Seif, led Saturday's climate march where many chanted no climate justice without human rights. To talk about all of this and more, we're joined by Assad Raymond executive director of War on Want and lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. Asad, welcome back to Democracy Now! Real pleasure. Um, and a pleasure to see you it's in person. It's great to see you in person. This is our first major trip uh, since the pandemic. Um, Asad, this is a very different kind of summit is what is laid on the table, not, not by the states, but by civil society, is that human rights and climate justice must be considered as one. Can you talk about the joining of these two specifically when it comes to the demand for the release of the leading political prisoner in Egypt, not to mention thousands of others that are held a la Fatah? Well, for the climate justice movement, human rights has been uh, an inextricable part of it. I mean, ultimately, the fight around climate crisis is the most basic of right, the right to be able to live and survive and live with dignity. But we also know that within our movement, that as we make demands, uh, our movements face repression and criminalization. Two environmental defenders are murdered each and every week around the world. We know that criminalization is now taking place in the global north with the right to protest being restricted as well as in, in the global south. So we came here knowing that, of course, our fight for climate justice was a fight for human rights. And, and we've always listened to and responded to the call of our movements where the COP takes place as to the issues they want to raise up, how we can best support them, how we can amplify their voice. And of course, the call to free Allah has been one that has been very central to climate justice organizations coming to the COP and uh, obviously raising our voices here. I mean, there have been a number of Egyptian activists that didn't even make it to the COP before they were imprisoned in Egypt, where this COP is being held. The significance of this? Well, let's be realistic. The things we can do inside this COP venue, uh, including the right to march, are denied to the majority of Egyptians. They're denied the right to association, right to free speech, right to organize, right to protest. So when we came here, we recognized that many of our movements would not be able to be here in person because of repression. It was the space itself is deliberately chosen to be quite distant from major population areas. Uh, there are huge restrictions there, of course, a, a huge security operation taking place all around uh, the COP, both inside and outside. And many of the Egyptian human rights activists and environmental and climate justice activists, of course, are already in prison, 60,000 of them in prison. So More uh, than the number of people attending this summit, which absolutely. is tens of thousands of people. A ab absolutely. So it was an obligation on us. Those of us who can attend here, who can be here, 
that we raise the voices of those people who are denied the opportunity to be here. Civil society has always been the ears and eyes and voice of frontline communities and there is no more frontline community than those people who are behind bars demanding for demanding a better world, the one that we have here fighting for. Just before we went to air, air Assad, um, here at COP27, I spoke to the longtime Nigerian environmentalist Nemo Bassi, director of Health of Mother Earth Foundation, about the protests here, both for climate justice and for human rights. You were at the protest on Saturday. Can you talk about the significance of that protest? Well, this was a very peculiar kind of protest because usually we march on the streets of cities, but here we were having a protest march within the confined perimeters of the official COP venue. It was very surreal, and we just moved over a short distance, but still, again, in a certain sense, it showed the resilience of the people because we didn't want to legitimize any kind of control march in the city or in the town. So this was very important. And then uh, the demands were mostly just denouncing the COP itself as lost and damaged. The COP is lost and damaged. And we also made very clear that um, net zero is a hopeless idea because just pushing the, because eventually using mathematics to solve the problem and then pushing the, the burden on the young people who, to whom the future belongs. Uh, and then we asked for, instead of just talking about loss and damage, that what we should be discussing at this time because of extreme degradation is the payment of a climate debt which takes care of historical responsibility as well as current uh, responsibility. You were standing in the front line right near Sanat Saif, who is the sister of Allah Abdel Fattah. Can you talk about the significance of him in a desert prison um, while this cop goes on and what the demand was? Um, well, I think the key, the key short phrase to capture it all is that there can be no climate justice without human rights. That was the slogan, and that really captures the situation. And we're very worried about the human rights situation in Egypt and the activists who are in detention, who are on hunger strike, and who are just suffering out there. And here we are discussing as though nothing is going on, nothing is, as if everything is normal. So the march, having that demand for the release of political, political of, of eight defenders, environmental defenders, of Allah himself, was very extremely significant during the march. And there was going to be a uh, human rights conference right after COP in Cairo. What happened? Uh, that meeting in Cairo would have shown that there's a space for conversation in the country, uh, but just when activists were getting ready to go to Cairo to book their flight, book the hotels, we just got information that the meeting would not take place because it's no longer authorized. Finally, this is called the Africa COP, the African UN Climate Summit. It's a, it's a big misnomer. This is not an African COP. Africa is not here. The poor people who are suffering floods, droughts, and all kinds of adverse situations, they're not here. They can't afford to get here. They wouldn't get accreditation. They can't afford the accommodation in this, this city that is most, mostly for tourists. Uh, it's a totally exclusive cup. I mean, the other cups were exclusive, but this is super exclusive. We're all cordoned into a peninsula, cut off from even the country in which we are supposed to be. This is not an African cop. We have to find another name for it. Just a cop, another failed cop.
So that's Nigerian environmentalist Nemo Bassi, director of the Health of Mother Earth Foundation, uh, speaking um, about whether this is Africa's cop as Egypt and other countries are billing it, though not necessarily African countries. I said, Raymond, uh, if you can talk more about what that means and who is represented here. Well, what, who, are, who is represented here? We're told there's tens of thousands of people represented here. Uh, some of them uh, are, of course, civil society, but there has been huge barriers to people being able to attend, particularly from Egypt itself and from the region of costs, etc. But the majority of that, this climate negotiation has become a trade fair. We see corporate lobbyists, we've seen hundreds of fossil fuel lobbyists, many of them on, the, on, on government delegations now. We see big business here saying we're providing the solutions, while of course ordinary people and the people on the front lines, whether they're in Pakistan, Nigeria or across the Horn of Africa, and their movements aren't physically here. Uh, which is why human rights is such an important part of, of, of what we've raised, because you know, the case of Allah is not about an individual. It's about symbolizing the reality of repression and criminalization and our, and our desire for that free, not just free Allah, but free them all. And when we say the free them all, of course, that means not just the Egyptian prisoners, but all of our political prisoners. And when it comes there. to, for example, Allah, do you think the Sisi regime is responding in any way? I mean, do you think it is possible he will be freed on a hunger strike for the last seven months, now just completing a um, complete hunger fast without water for the last week? Look, uh, the, the Egyptian presidency thought that this COP would be the one where they would, you know, be able to shake hands, sign deals, do all of these background deals, do trade deals and would bask in the fact that, you know, they were the ones that could deliver finally something positive on loss and damage, for example. And instead, they've been faced with the reality that we as civil society have said, hold on, we're not allowing business as usual. Actually, we're not allowing you to bury the voice of the family of Allah. The, the call for free Allah is a part and parcel of our struggle, and we've made it. So, yes, President Macron, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, they all came here, but they all did nothing. They, left, they didn't leave with, with Allah. They didn't get consular uh, access for Allah. But we as civil society have been relentless here, not only in terms of press And just to say, Councillor Axis, because he is not only a, an Egyptian citizen, but a British citizen as yes, well. Yes, he's, he's a dual national. And until this morning, we didn't even have proof of life. We didn't, his family didn't know whether he was alive or dead, whether he was being force-fed, whether he was, etc. So, and I think the pressure we've been putting here, the march, the press conference, the constant letter, the fact that we didn't allow political leaders to come here and ignore the case of Allah has made a difference. We're now saying it's week two. The, the end goal is that Allah leaves before this COP ends. So next year's COP is in the United Arab Emirates, the country with the largest number of delegates here. I think there are about a thousand delegates from the United Arab Emirates. Um, a number of them have links to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, Global Witness has found that there is a has that the number of um, 
Delegates with links to fossil fuels has increased 25% overall from the summit in Glasgow. But with the UAE, uh, it also has one of the highest carbon emissions per capita in the world, not to mention its shameful human rights record. When you look at the workers and what has happened to them, the number of deaths of workers in the UAE, how do you interpret the decision of the COP to hold next year in UAE, following this year in Egypt? I think quite rightly, people would be absolutely shocked. Look, civil society have always said, you know, there should be some criteria. There should be criteria about where the COP is held, but there should also be criteria about who's invited into this COP. That's why civil society have asked for a conflict of interest to be able to say, who are these delegates? What are their interests? What links do they have with the fossil fuel industry? You can't have the very people burning the planet sitting here and pretending to be uh, drafting the solutions to it. And that's exactly what's happening in these climate negotiations. I think what we are seeing now increasingly civil society is saying these spaces need to be judged on their outcomes and their action and how they respond to the fact that we're in an interconnected crisis of which human rights is a central part of it. So we'll be taking that message forward and we'll be saying wherever the COP is held, we will be raising the voice about human rights. As civil society, that's our commitment. And it won't just be during the COP. It will be up to, during and after the COP. Because this is the movement that we are creating. And this is the world that we want to create. You mentioned loss and damage. Interestingly, Nima Bassi said this UN climate summit is lost and damaged. But that is UN speak. Explain what that actually means on the ground in so many countries around the world. So... So when we look at the climate crisis, I, I would say there are three things that need to be done. If you, and, and, and there's the stop doing harm, i.e. stop emitting more pollution in the atmosphere. And there we've seen rich countries refusing to do their fair share. And we're heading, of course, towards a warming that could be close to three degrees. Uh, repair the harm, which is in UN terms adaptation. So how do we live with the fact that we live in a warming planet and that's adaptation that's not just building seawalls it's how do we protect our food production how do we guarantee people's social protection living wages these are all the resilience that people need but the third element is you have to pay compensation for the damage you've caused right and that's both economic damages but of course there are damages which are beyond putting a, a, a cost on it the, the cultures of people people's lands being lost and loss and damage is the third element of that and increasingly the less we do of the first the more we need to do of the third and so the call here is that we must have a fund on loss and damage and uh, i hope by the end of the week and i hope when ministers arrive today and we get into the political negotiations that we can bridge that gap. And what about Biden's promise of $11 billion and where Biden is right now in Bali, Indonesia, with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping? Um, what we have to understand about uh, the U.S., the historically by far largest greenhouse gas emitter, and currently China, the largest um, ga greenhouse gas emitter in the world. So the, this, I mean, from the United States perspective, you know, uh, their their line within these climate negotiations has always been very, very simple. Yes, we recognise we're the largest historical responsibility. We don't want to be liable for the damages we've caused. We don't want to even talk about the fact that we're the most. So we should 
start the clock again right from now and everybody should do the, the, the same action and everybody should be responsible and of course what they mean also is you China and India you must also do what we're being expected to do and of course from a China and India's perspective it's hold on 83% of this emissions is, is you. Why are you telling us? We've only just been recently began to pollute. Yes, we have to reduce our emissions, but you reduce them first. You put the money on the table to help the poorer countries. You live up to your liabilities, your responsibilities, your obligations, and then we'll talk about ours. So there is a, a challenge going on in terms of here between, of course, the richest countries. It's often said, you know, when the United States sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. But when the, rest, when the United States refuses to take action, the rest of the world burns. And that's the reality of what we're seeing, that the United States has to live up to its responsibility of cutting emissions. Now, President Biden came here last week and he made a speech about climate change. And of course, back home, we're also the United States, just like the United Kingdom and the European Union, is expanding oil and gas. And that's exactly why the United Arab Emirates feels so able to have a thousand delegates here and fossil fuels, because what they're saying is, well, oil and gas can be the fuels of the future. I mean, it's impossible. How mad is that? But that's, the, uh, that's because what we're seeing here is, is, uh, is a new part of the conversation, which is largely about how do we remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and it's all about carbon capture and storage, basically faulty, un unproven technologies to allow the fossil fuel industry to continue as business as usual. Well, um, we want to thank you for being with us, Asad, and we hope to come back to you this week or next as the um, UN Climate Summit wraps up. At the end of the week, we'll be here throughout. Asad Raymond is Executive Director of War on Want, lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. Yes, coming up, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping have just held their first in-person meeting since Biden became president. We'll get a response. Stay with us. I thank God for all the outlaws that when did the world some good. This old world could use good trouble. We ought to do as Leonard Disavowed them from the start, causing hardship with indifference and a cage around our hearts. We write doctrines of injustice, which we sanctify as law. We incarcerate their warriors. Leonard Peltier by Joe Troop in conjunction with the American Indian Movement, which organized Leonard Peltier's Walk to Justice, an 1,100-mile march over two and a half months from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Washington, D.C. That concluded Sunday. Marchers were calling for the release of Peltier, a Native American activist who's been in prison since 1977. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Meanwhile, President Biden met with President um, Xi Jinping of China in Bali, Indonesia today for their first in-person talk since Biden took office. The meeting took place ahead of the G20 summit and amidst increasing tensions between the two countries over Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, and trade. The two leaders were also expected to discuss the climate crisis in North Korea. President Biden spoke earlier today prior to the meeting. Leaders of uh, our two nations, we share responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict, and to find ways to work together on urgent global issues that require our mutual cooperation. And uh, I believe uh, this is critical for the sake of our two countries and the international community. This, uh, this was a key to the theme of the COP27 meeting, where I spoke on Friday, and we'll be discussing a lot of these challenges together, I hope, uh, in the next couple hours. That Chinese President Xi Jinping also spoke in Bali, Indonesia, before meeting with President Biden, their first meeting since President Biden became president. <laughs> The world has come to a crossroads. Where to go from here? This is a question that is not only on our minds, but also on the minds of all the countries. The world expects that China and the United States will properly handle the relationship. Our meeting has attracted the world's attention. So we need to work with all the countries to bring more hope to world peace, greater confidence to global stability, and a stronger impetus to common development. Just think of a line there, a wall. We're joined now by two guests. Michael Clare is co-founder of the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He's also The Nation Magazine's defense correspondent. And we're joined by Orville Schell, director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society, previously the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, and has been reporting on China since 1970. We welcome you both to Democracy. Now. It's great to have you with us. Um, Orville Schell, let's begin with you. The significance of today's summit and what you thinks, think needs to be accomplished. Well, it's, it's certainly uh, long overdue that Biden and Xi Jinping personally get together. Uh, they've had five talks uh, uh, virtually, but they've not actually sat down. And I think in, in, a, in a curious way, Biden is precisely the right person to try to thaw out Xi Jinping. Uh, he's been on two trips with him in the past, uh, one in China. He hosted him as vice president here in the United States. So they, insofar as it's possible to know Xi Jinping, uh, Biden does know him, and he's a glad-handing, very avuncular, sort of open person. So I think um, there's some hope there. But, of course, we have two countries with very, very different political systems. And uh, China has become much more autocratic, much more hectoring and bullying other countries around the world, much more aggressive and bellicose. And they think this is their moment. They um, have 
attain sufficient wealth and power to to gain a, 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 a not only a voice in the world but to begin to set the rules of the game. So there's an awful lot of contentiousness and an awful lot of disagreement, and um, uh, one wonders just how far they can get. But if they can lower the temperature a little, that is something in its own right. Mm. Michael Clare, what you think needs to happen right now? I mean, these it was not clear this meeting, face-to-face meeting, was even going to happen, uh, but it did. Uh, and what you feel both China and the U.S. have to give at this point, what needs to happen in the world? Well, let's look at the backdrop to this meeting. Coming into the meeting, tensions between the U.S. and China were at at their worst level in decades, a very high level of tension over Taiwan in particular. Uh, Since Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in August, China has uh, stepped up its military activities around Taiwan. At the same time, uh, the U.S. has increased its own military pressures against China by concluding military deals with Australia and building up its military alliances with South Korea and Japan. By the way, Biden met with the leaders of those two countries while he was in Cambodia on the way from Sharm el-Sheikh to Bali. So there's been an a increase in military tensions in the Pacific, which, you know, in my mind, if they, if, if they continued on the course they were on, would lead to a military clash sooner or later. So what has to happen at this meeting, Amy, is for the two leaders to find a way to cool those tensions down and to find ways to reduce the risk of a military clash arising in the Pacific, either over Taiwan or in the South China Sea. And in the uh, clips that you played just a few minutes ago, uh, you could see both of them stressing the need to manage tensions, to uh, avoid conflict. That's really what this uh, summit is all about. So. Orville Shaw, you take a different view of, for example, Michael Clare, very critical of Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. If Republicans take the House by however narrow a margin, it's pretty clear Kevin McCarthy, if he is the House Speaker, would also head to Taiwan. Um, You were recently in Taiwan. Your thoughts on the Pelosi visit and the U.S. approach to Taiwan right now? It it was also clear that the Biden administration was not completely supportive of Pelosi going. No, I think the Biden administration was very wary about sticking unnecessary fingers in the eyes of Xi Jinping in China. On the other hand, in fairness to Nancy Pelosi, I think she got kind of trapped by circumstances. Her original intention was she had not announced she was going to Taiwan, just that she was going to Asia, and the FT leaked the story. So then she got stuck with the fact that China had advanced warning. Her original intention was just to slide in, spend, you know, 24 hours and leave and uh, uh, not be as provocative as it ended up being. However, I have to say, having been in Taiwan right after her trip, 
um, I think it had a certain utility. Um, as uh, Michael Clare noted, there's enormous tension in the Taiwan Straits, and Xi Jinping has been incredibly bellicose and has not eschewed using uh, military force to retake Taiwan, which he claims is part of China. And I think Nancy Pelosi's trip did help wake up not only people in Taiwan, who are used to the status quo, to make them begin to recognize that there is a real threat on the horizon and they're going to have to mobilize themselves against it to be a deterrent if they expect to prevent it from happening. But also, I think her trip helped wake up the world about uh, in terms of what China actually has in mind for Taiwan. They had seven live fire zones all around the island, shooting missiles over the island into into uh, 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 Japan's uh, uh, waters. So, I mean, this is, this is no joke. Xi Jinping is a very aggressive man, and Taiwan Straits is a very dangerous uh, zone. And the question is, what's the best way to deter China from doing anything? Michael Clare, maybe you can take that question. Uh, well, I, I think Orville uh, raised some of the difficulties we face. Uh, certainly, Xi Jinping and the Chinese have made very threatening comments regarding Taiwan. But uh, that's only half of the picture. The other half is what has the United States done to increase tensions in the Taiwan Strait. And if you look at what the Biden administration has been doing, it has been suggesting that Taiwan should become part of the U.S. military alliance, joining Japan, South Korea, Australia, India in, in the Quad, so-called, uh, as part of a chain of islands and states surrounding China and uh, trying to throttle its rise. Now, that may not be the way it's uh, framed in, in U.S. government statements, but that's certainly the way it looks to China. So uh, from Chinese point of view, the, it's the U.S. that's the aggressor. I, I'm not saying necessarily that 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 that's the uh, master plan in Washington, but that's the way it looks. So just as Orville says that uh, the Chinese to us appear very bellicose and threatening, uh, that that's the a question of perception on both sides. So what has to happen is for both sides to lay out what they're really what they're real intentions are, try to dispel any misconceptions, and to try to find a peaceful path forward to for Taiwan. If the U.S. says that Taiwan is going to be part of the U.S. alliance system, which the Biden administration has said, that is going to provoke a conflict, which could lead to World War III. Same thing if China invades. Uh, uh, so... We're really in a dangerous situation here. Speaking of war, the war in Ukraine and the position Xi Jinping is taking, I mean, it's very interesting that um, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, did not attend the G20 summit. Many felt it was because he didn't feel he would have enough support from Xi. Um, your thoughts on this, Orville Shell? 
think um, there's a great question mark hanging over exactly what uh, Vladimir Putin told Xi Jinping at the uh, Winter Olympics, whether he actually told him uh, what he had in mind. I suspect he thought that he could get in, take Kiev, Kiev in, in a very short period of time, and, and he told Xi Jinping, listen, we, we have to do this. This is our territory. Don't worry. It'll be over quickly. And, it, of course, that hasn't proven true. Um, I, I, I would disagree with Michael Clare about, uh, uh, you know, it's not a 50-50 uh, matter in the Taiwan Straits that the U.S. And, and China are both sort of provoking each other equally. Uh, China has not eschewed the use of force to retake Taiwan and reintegrate it in the motherland. And there's, uh, uh, you know, the, the United States rejects that, but it has not uh, threatened to make China a, a treaty ally or put it into the Quad or into AUKUS or anything like that. But it is, does by congressional act, is committed to, to provide it with adequate self-defense. And it seems completely legitimate that only 2% of the Taiwanese people want to be part of the Chinese mainland. And um, that is a reality. And uh, it is an open society, a free society, and a democratic society, and China is not. And therein lies the contentiousness. That is the contradiction. And that it's not one that Biden can solve, even by, by a summit in Bali. Well, Michael Clare, if you could respond to that. And also, in looking at the readout, um, I just want to let our viewers and listeners know that as we broadcast, the news conference that President Biden is holding after the Biden-Xi meeting is just taking place right now. But from that readout, um, uh, the concern has been raised about um, the readout from the White House. President Biden raised concerns about China's practices in Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, and human rights more broadly. Your response as we begin to wrap up this discussion. I'm sure Orville and I Michael. both agree that uh, the human rights situation in China is atrocious and that this should be, uh, you know, raised wherever possible. Uh, we should also mention that uh, the, there's been a huge increase in attacks on Asian Americans in the United States. And I attribute both of them, that is the, the uh, horrendous conditions in both countries, to the intensification of these Cold War tensions that we've been discussing Amy. And so one hopes that the meeting in Bali will lead to a lowering of hostilities between China and the United States. And that might make it possible uh, to address the human rights situation in China uh, without it being uh, overlaid with the U.S.-China tensions making it worse. And that conditions in this country against Asians will improve. And Orville Show, your final thoughts on this issue of human rights in China. Well, my final thought is that uh, the United States since 1972 has spent, as during nine different U.S. presidential administrations sought to make a policy of engagement which was to accept China, embrace China, bring it into the world system, uh, uh, 
And uh, it was actually you know, Xi Jinping who put a stake through the heart of engagement. So we are now in a state of estrangement and increasingly uh, more hostile relationship. Uh, it is with some uh, great, uh, I think, regret that we look back on the period where we tried to sort of bend the metal of Leninism and autocracy in China by slowly integrating China into the world system. It didn't work. And now we're confronting a much more antagonistic situation, and we don't know where it's going to lead. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult. Well, Joe, we want to thank you for being with us. We're going to have to carry this discussion on another time. Uh, but Orville Schell is director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. Previously was dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at University of California, Berkeley. Has been reporting on China since 1970. And Michael Clare, defense correspondent for The Nation, professor emeritus at Hampshire College. This is Democracy Now! Back here at COP27, we're going to look at where we are in Egypt with Ahmed El Joubi, Greenpeace's regional campaign manager for the Middle East and North Africa in 30 seconds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting live from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, a country that is warming faster than the global average and in many ways is a bellwether for the painful effects of climate change. Egypt's facing everything from rising seas and drought to desertification and deadly heat. The Nile Delta is considered one of the most vulnerable large deltas in the world to be directly affected by climate change by 2050, according to the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Egyptian farmers are already struggling after changing weather and patterns have severely affected crop yields in a country that's facing rising food insecurity. Along with agricultural productivity, water scarcity, and soil salination are among the most pressing issues Egypt faces. Egyptian authorities have launched a national strategy for tackling climate change for 2050, in which the government would spend $113 billion for adaptation programs and envisions almost half that budget going to agriculture, although it says most of the money is yet to be raised. For more on the climate crisis here in Egypt, as well as the rest of the region, we're joined by Ahmed al Droubi, Greenpeace Regional Campaign Manager for the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us. We only have a few minutes, but if you could lay out the scope of the issue as we sit here um, right next to the Red Sea. Well, you highlighted, well, first of all, thank you for hosting. Uh, first of all, you highlighted it very, you summed it up very well. Uh, the most significantly impacted sector in Egypt is definitely the agricultural sector. And it's facing many different threats. We've already seen the impacts happening, across, especially over the last decade. 
for example, something like the olive harvest has been impacted heavily at least five out of the last 10 years. There are many risks to more significant crops, such as wheat, which is you know, the source of our subsistence in, in this country. Uh, especially, and this is made so much worse by geopolitical events such as the war in Ukraine, where Egypt imports 60% of its wheat, a majority of which comes from Russia and Ukraine. And we are feeling the impacts of the, of the food, global food crisis here more significantly than elsewhere. What we've seen in the agricultural sector is that new pests and new diseases have been able to acclimatize to the changes in weather. We've seen that seasons have been shortened and therefore impacting yields. We've seen that uh, waves of heat or cold waves can impact yields significantly as well. And we've had our mango season impacted heavily last year, which is a vital crop for a great deal of uh, farmers in eastern Egypt, in the canal region, uh, where they suffered a great deal of economic losses. The Nile Delta uh, is known to be threatened to be, to, you know, covered by, by seawater. But now we can see an impact. Soil salinification and seawater intrusion is happening. If you simply look at a satellite image, you can see that the first rows of farms across the delta have changed into, have moved into aqua, aquaculture and are no longer able to, to provide food. And it's, it's a growing crisis. And the Nile itself, models predict that the standard deviation will increase by 50%. That means in the future, it's double as likely for droughts or floods to happen. And this lack of predictability, along with the, the fact that, that Egypt is already under the water poverty line, as, uh, and putting into that the geopolitical issues with Ethiopia, with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, it, it, it creates a high likelihood of conflict as well. Uh, what do you think Egypt has to do? And what do you think the uh, nations that are most responsible for the climate crisis, like the U.S. and China and the Western countries, need to do in this last minute we have? Well, this is, this is the point of these, these negotiations. And it's, you know, it's an oversimplification, but it, it hits the nail on the head. For 30 years, we've been negotiating one question, whether those that have caused this climate crisis will be held accountable and liable for their actions. And so far, they have refused to take responsibility. The, the, the founding principles of the UNFCCC of common but differentiated responsibility and the polluter pays have been watered down over decades. And sadly, we're seeing this today with negotiations around loss and damage especially even after the horrendous impacts of the climate emergency this year, especially in, in uh, Pakistan, Nigeria, and many other places. Till today, we are looking for, they're posing false solutions, temporary solutions that do not address the core of the climate crisis. Well, that's what we're going to be doing all week, is addressing the core issues here, who's responsible, what needs to be done. 
Ahmed Odrubi is the Greenpeace Regional Campaign Manager for the Middle East and North Africa. That's right, all this week, Democracy Now! is broadcasting live from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, from the... COP27, 27th Conference of Parties, the UN Climate Summit. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gessner, Messiah Lesnar, and Shake, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnock, Tarina Nadora, Sam Alcock, Tim Maria Asti, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Dennis Moynihan, Mary Conlon. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.